do you know what it means to have a relationship with Christ? Do you know what it means to be touched by Him and transformed by Him, to be forgiven by Him, and to know Him deeply in an abiding, intimate manner? to have a prayer life that is living and real, that is exciting and developing, that is growing in your faith. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have been with us over the last several Sunday mornings, you will be aware we have steadily been working our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And today we're coming to Acts chapter 4. So if you have your Bible with you, would you turn please to Acts chapter 4 as we read together verses 5 through 13. And you'll find it on page 1696, page 1696 of the church Bible. Some of you this morning will be thinking, Richard, this is a mistake. We studied this very passage last Sunday morning, and you're absolutely right, we did. And it's a rare thing to spend two Sundays in a row in the same passage, but that's where we're going this morning. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this, they asked. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he makes a reference to Jesus, and he says, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. When we open up the Scriptures on Sunday morning, what can we expect and what are the questions we should be asking? Now, let me use a $50 word. Now, my staff give me a hard time for using $20 and $30 words, but this, I think, is up there, and here it comes. The technical term for reading, studying, and interpreting the Bible is called hermeneutics. Okay, hermeneutics. There are several E's in there. Please don't ask me to spell it. Hermeneutics, the study and interpretation of Scripture. But without getting into all of the sophisticated, nuanced argument when it comes to interpreting the Scripture, let me give you, please, four questions to ask whenever you come to the Scriptures. 
And I'm giving you these four questions for this reason. It's that sometimes I think we ask the wrong questions when we come to study a passage of Scripture, like the passage we've got this morning. Are you familiar with the children's book, Where's Waldo? Parents, grandparents, let me see. Oh, higher than that, please. Let me have a look. Choir, what do we think? A good number. Familiar with this? Yeah, a lot of fun. And basically the idea is this. When a wee one climbs up onto a lap and wants to read a story or wants to work their way through Wally, page after page has dozens and dozens and dozens of characters and you get to see if you can find well, we call him Wally in Scotland. He's called Waldo. Forgive me for that. And there he is. Same character, just a different name. Red and white shirt, blue pants. There he is. And the idea is you look through all these characters until the wee one finds Waldo, and it's a lot of fun. And of course, it's teaching them to be exact. It's teaching them to search and to look, and it's so much fun. But the problem with Waldo is this, when it comes to reading the scriptures, we take the principle from a children's book and we apply it to the scriptures. And we apply it in this sense, we end up asking ourselves, where am I in this book? Now that's not a bad question to ask, but it's not the first question we ask. So let me give you a sense of whenever it comes to looking at the scriptures, what do we do? Now, of course, we've been focused on the work of the Holy Spirit over these last few weeks, and we're about to see it again this morning. But the questions we begin to ask is this, what does the passage say? Now, we're not very good at that. What does the passage actually say? Not what do we think it means, not what did it mean 25 years ago when we were in youth group, or even longer when we were a child, but what does the passage say? That's so important. And the second question is this, what does the passage say about God? And I've listed these questions at the end of your sermon study notes this morning, so you've got them, but it's important to say, what does the passage say about God? Then, thirdly, we ask, what does the passage say about me? Now, if I can use another illustration, I think it's pretty helpful at this point, and I've used it several times in the past, so please forgive me if this is redundant. It's like asking a 10-year-old, what does 1776 mean to you? That's a good question, but it's not the first question. The first question is, what does 1776 mean? Then you ask, what does it mean to you? And likewise, when it comes to the Scriptures, what does the passage say? What does it say about God? Because He is always the most important character on any biblical story. Then thirdly, what does the passage say about me? And finally, is there something I must do? And that's where we're going to end in our study this morning. So with all of that in mind, let's come to the passage before us. And as we've read the passage, we're about to look at a question that is so controversial. It was in the first century, it is in the 21st century, and it comes right out of verse 12. Because verse 12 says, in clear, unambiguous terms, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So what is the controversy? What is the question? It's this. 
And you may already have come across this. Someone in your neighborhood, someone in your Sunday school class, maybe a good friend who knows you well. You're sitting down, catching up on family news over a cup of coffee. And they say to you, now, does the church today still believe that salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus Christ? Now, that was okay in the first century, but way back then was okay. But things have changed. Today, we live in a high-tech, sophisticated, global village, and we know so much more today than we did back then. Doesn't that come across quite simply as arrogance? That's all it comes across, and no one is attracted to it, because today we know all religions are the same. Therefore, when you say salvation is found in no one else, frankly, it comes across as arrogance. And why would people believe that today anyway? So that's the question, and you can understand why it's controversial, because none of us ever wants to say, yes, of course it's arrogant. Please forgive me. Because when you label something with arrogance, it is so much easier to dismiss it than ask, is it true? There's a world of a difference between arrogance and truth. And if our culture and our society can label something as arrogance, can label something as an irre irrelevance, can label something as out of touch with people today, it's so much easier to dismiss it than wrestle with the content of what's been said. And that's exactly where we're going in our study this morning. Now, having said all of that, when Peter is speaking, he's speaking into the context of his day. Remember what he says. He says, rulers and brothers. He's speaking into the context of the Sanhedrin. Today, we live in a different context. He then goes on to explain the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And of course, the central point of all he has to say is the crucifixion. And he says, as a result of that crucifixion, God himself, he who was and is and is to come, was bringing to pass his eternal purposes and plan in the life, death, ministry of Christ. And there is no salvation found in anyone else except in Christ. That was the context. Now, how do we respond in a 21st, context, 21st century context when someone says, quite frankly, that is arrogant? Well, let's for a moment look at our 21st century culture. We touched on this back in April and May when we were looking at the Old Testament book of Daniel. And semiotics, that's my other $50 word, so that's $100 this morning, that's a lot of money. Semiotics is the study of our culture and the signals that that culture gives off. And those who study semiotics tell us this, that the generation who are 14 to 19 years old are called the millennial generation. And their culture, the 14s to 19s, in fact, I think it's much wider than that, the culture they live in, the society they inhabit, teaches this. Now, I'm going to run through this quickly, so I need you to pay attention. Now, madam, if your husband is sitting beside you and he's fallen asleep, give him a nudge. This is the time he needs to wake up and catch this, okay? If you're ever going to understand your grandchildren, here it comes. 
For millennials, Wi-Fi is an entitlement. Parents, grandparents, if you wish to discipline your 14 to 19-year-olds, change the password on your network, okay? Until they tidy their room and make their bed and take out the trash and all of that. Ruth does it with me all the time. It infuriates me. It just infuriates me. But she does. So Wi-Fi is an entitlement. Secondly, access to technology means the world is instant, open, and limitless. And that means this, that life is defined by being connected to the ubiquitous convenience of a digital playground. No question that's the case. 92% do not go online, they live online. They're multiracial in their friendships, global in their outlook. They're sexually fluid, and we touched on all of that last Sunday morning. They believe themselves to be mature and in control. They intend to change the world. Entrepreneurship is in their blood. They seek education and knowledge and use social media as a tool. Their attention span is getting shorter. I used to find myself in the kitchen thinking, what have I come in here for? And now, a couple of days ago, in fact, I was at the bottom of the stairs thinking, have I just gone up or have I just come down? <laughs> it is not just millennials whose attention span is getting shorter. Millennials also multitask over five screens and do it every day. They communicate with symbols, speed, and images. They are hyper-aware of humanity's impact on the planet. They are savvy and well-informed when it comes to advertising. They are more apt to be influenced by friends than television commercials. And incidentally, most of them do not watch television. It's Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. 78% believe in God. Less than half attend a weekly religious service. 21.3% claim to be agnostic. And this is the part I need you to get. If you've missed all of that and it was too quick, I need you to get this. Today, we live in a society that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. And that, in essence, means this. That when you listen with your eyes, what our 14s to 19s are telling us is this, even into their 30s and 40s, if you have children and grandchildren, they want to know this. Does your faith make a difference in the way you live? That's the question they're asking. They hear us talk about prayer. They hear us talking about going to church. They hear us talking about moral and spiritual standards. But doesn't make a difference in your life. In other words, do you model Christianity for them? Do they see you at prayer? Do they ever see you opening up the Scriptures other than a Sunday morning? Do they hear you talk about God and your relationship with Him, which is the most exciting relationship you can ever have? They are asking, is it real? Is it credible? Is it authentic? Because they listen with their eyes. That is a challenge to us, but it is also immensely healthy. Immensely healthy. The latter part of this assessment causes us some question marks. And it says this, today we live in a society that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. 
Now, when you end up thinking with your feelings, that can take you into major difficult, major difficulties. In other words, if it feels good, do it. That does not work when you are married and end up in an extramarital affair just because it feels good. It is pleasing. You have a desire, an appetite. That is not a good way to move. If something is arrogant, of course, you don't want anything to do with it. You're thinking with your feelings because remember the premise we made earlier? There's a world of a difference between arrogance and truth. World of a difference. But when you label it arrogant, as we said moments ago, it's easy to dismiss it and marginalize it rather than saying it is true. Our generation today tell us there are no absolutes. And by that, they tell us that, and they tell us that absolutely. How odd is that? They are saying there are no absolutes, and I'm telling you that absolutely. They have become the very thing they're arguing against. It's self-contradictory. And so when someone says salvation is found in no one else, it's easy, as we said, to say it's arrogant. Now, let me try and apply it in a simple way, so please forgive me for this. When we say salvation is found in no one else, that is an exclusive truth from the Christian perspective. When we say two and two equal four, that is an exclusive truth. Two and two isn't three, it isn't five, it's four. That's an exclusive truth. And what we need to determine is this. In the culture and society we live in, the question is this, not so much is it arrogant, but is it true? So the question when it comes to our faith is, not so much is it arrogant, but is it true? That's the question. That's the question. Now, let me take it a step further. And it's this. When Christians come to read and engage with God through his word, what we are doing is saying this. We are not saying faith means we believe something we know not to be true. That's not faith. That's stupidity. If you know something isn't true, you don't believe it. So where does that leave us in terms of truth? We don't have faith in faith. So as a Christian, we ask the following questions. When we engage with what is taught throughout the Scriptures, we are asking, is it true? We examine the argument. We don't shut off our brains. We do not commit cerebral suicide. We listen to the objections when someone pushes back against their faith. We research the claims that are made in the Scriptures. We sift the evidence. We ask, is it compelling? Is it coherent? Is it reasonable? When Peter and John are speaking to the Sanhedrin, they are saying this, over these last three years, we walked with him. We heard him teach. We saw his impact on people's life. We saw souls transformed. We watched him die on Friday and rise on Sunday. And his Holy Spirit has come, indwells us, and enables us to follow him. We don't follow him in our own strength. This is not something we're making up. It is God at work, and it is true. 
not arrogant. It is true because we have experienced his touch. We have had our lives transformed. We have had our sin forgiven. He has invaded our lives, and we know him intimately, no longer based on emotion and information, but based on his love and grace that draws us to himself, and he transforms the soul. That's why we say salvation is found in no one else because we know it to be true in our own experience. We know what it means to open up the Word of God and for verses to jump off the page and impact our life and transform us and renew us. We know the reality of it. Now, having said all of that, let me try and wrap this up in the last couple of minutes, and it's this. There comes a point in every life, every life, a point of decision. And when all of the evidence of our Christian faith points in one direction, there comes a point of trust and commitment. It's no longer based on evidence, although evidence is certainly part of the foundation on which we stand. It's reasonable and compelling. And we follow that evidence and we don't dismiss it. To dismiss it would simply be wrong. It's intellectual integrity that allows us to develop it. And that point of commitment and trust is this. And if no one else asks you in the rest of your life, as a minister of the gospel, I am duty-bound this morning through my ordination vows to ask you this. Do you know what it means to have a relationship with Christ? Do you know what it means to be touched by Him and transformed by Him, to be forgiven by Him, and to know Him deeply in an abiding, intimate manner, to have a prayer life that is living and real, that is exciting and developing, that is growing in your faith. That is what is happening throughout the book of Acts because the gospel has invaded and it has changed lives. And there comes a point when you are able to take off mentally, intellectually, all the questions you have, there comes a point of commitment. And that commitment is now. It is this morning at this service. And if you have never gotten to the point where you are able to say, Lord Jesus, I know you to be real. I understand all that you suffered for my sin. I am not the perfect person. I have sinned. I have broken your heart. I have hurt others around me, and I need your forgiveness. I fully understand all that was accomplished at Calvary when you died for my sins, and your call is on my life. Please forgive me. Transform me. Enable me, please, to surrender and submit my life to you at this moment today. That's the point of commitment that every person must face. That's the point of trusting Him for your eternity 
eternal salvation. Folks, this isn't something like a hobby that you can let go and it's no big deal because salvation is found in no one else. And you have to decide this morning whether you're going to follow him, surrender and submit to him and live with him all your days or wander on your own. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable and challenging passage of Scripture. Enable each one of us, please, to take it to heart, to surrender and submit our lives to you and to seek your forgiveness, to seek your enabling grace and your strengthening on our lives that we might live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The support group ministry at First Presbyterian Church gives help, friendship, compassion, and spiritual comfort to those who are hurting or experiencing times of special need. Trained and experienced facilitators lead grief share for those dealing with the loss of a loved one, divorce care for both adults and children, and help for families, which provides support for those concerned about a friend or a family member identifying as LGBT. For more information, visit firstpressgreenville.org or call the Congregational Care Office at 864 235 496.